Welcome to Culture Vulture. Kia ora everybody and welcome to part two of our special Taylor Swift editions of Culture Vulture. Liv, how are you feeling after last edition? You know, I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like I was thrown into multiple relationships. Yes. Yeah, I I feel good. Yeah, so do I. I feel like I'm ready to learn about why the fuck she's re-releasing all of these albums because... For anyone that doesn't know, because why would you, Liv has done the research on all of this like legal stuff and why she had to re-release the albums. And for the second half of this episode, I'm just going to sit here and just soak it all up. But for the first half, I'm going to talk to you about the final few eras before all of the re-records started happening. Now, in 2019, we had her lover era. Now, this was like... Lover. I just love it how she says that. I know. This was like a 180 from her reputation era. It was like, reputation was like, I don't know, grungy, black, dark. And then this era is like, literally butterflies, rainbows, pink, bright colours. open with me? Like, was that the first single? Yes. Yeah. Which I did not like. No, 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 no. Oh my God. Lover, I mean, wasn't my favourite album whatsoever. It, it, It was unique. Me did not do it for me. Um, But there was like just a notable shift of her really being in love. And like, I don't know, I just feel like she just wanted to scream it from the rooftops and kind of happy for her. She also signaled that maybe the old Taylor wasn't dead after all. You know how she was like, the old Taylor's dead, but it's like, no, you're just wanting to sort of remove yourself from that like public persona that everyone decided to hate because fear enough. It's like Miley Cyrus breaking away from Disney, Demi Lovato. Like, you know, they've all done it. They have this squeaky clean persona and that is, it's a big pressure. Yeah. To handle. So, yeah, you've got to go through. You have to go, go too far it. and then bring yourself back. Exactly. So, so she said um, when she was writing about this album, she said, I've decided that in this life I want to be defined by the things I love, not the things I hate, the things I'm afraid of, or the things that haunt me in the middle of the night. Those things may be my struggles, but they're not my identity, which really like rounds out her coming back from reputation and being like that was a phase that was fine like it did what it needed to do but now I'm just gonna like be my authentic self her look with this came with obviously a lot of brighter and more colorful colors yeah. for lack of a better word at worth word <laughs> I I do have <laughs> lack of a better worth work word <laughs> Oh my God. is going down the toilet right now. Oh my God. Your identity is a Honestly, fantastic podcast. Forgotten how to talk. Yeah. There was a lot of pink, a lot of purple. There was a lot of like 70s inspired clothes. Like that's, we all know what the love era looked like. And I can't even, and I'm not even going to talk about the relationships that defined this era because it was one relationship. It was Joe Alwyn, her boyfriend, possibly engaged person. What do you call that? Fiance. Um, We don't know if that's confirmed and she doesn't owe us that at all, but um, Joe Alwyn, who actually was rumoured to have ghostwritten a few of these songs under a pseudonym, rumoured, we don't know, but probably. Well, we know about Exile. So, do we? Yeah, but that's not Lover, but we're jumping ahead now, Mm, but we do know Exile. She's she's said it on a lot of interviews, yeah. Okay, love that for them. Well, 
Now that we've talked enough about Lover because it wasn't my favourite, so why would we talk more about it? Because <laughs> it's all about it's me. It's all about me, obviously. <laughs> no, we get to the folky era, which really to me feels the most like rounded out. It's like she's yes. been through all the genres, she's been through all the identities she needs to, and then she's found herself, her sound, her style. She really has like, it's beautiful storytelling from the country era. And then we've got like some lovely production from her Jack reputation. Antonoff. Yeah, Jack Antonoff, <laughs> shout out. Um, and then, yeah, we've got this sort of subdued but very elegant and eloquent it's body of work. It's just stunning. I think, mm-hmm. I honestly think this is my favourite of Taylor's eras. And and I was saying to Liv the other day that I wouldn't mind if this was her final era. Like, I, mm. I feel like she's rounded out. She's given us enough. She doesn't owe us enough, obviously. The, songwriting and singing is her bread and butter. So if she wants to release more music, there's a high chance she will, and she can. But if this was her last era... Like, wouldn't be mad about wouldn't it. Wouldn't be mad mm. about it. So in this era, she had folklore and she had even more. And she was really embracing, like, the cottagecore aesthetic. Yeah. So, like... And and these were both surprise releases. So in, in July 2020, that was when folklore came out. And then in December of 2020, that was when the sister album Evermore came out. And, and they were written during quarantine. And she just... Honestly, she just worked so fucking hard. I think it, like, foreshadows her savviness as a business person and also like her trust in her fan base to be able to you know drop these albums without any marketing only like her and Beyonce and you know like limited artists can do that that. because those people with such a core you know fandom yes yeah can do that and they know that people will Love it. Exactly. And then that foreshadows the re-record because that's what that was all about. But anyway. Exactly. So so the last thing that rounds out this era was obviously her like she was back wearing her braids, her natural hair, her flannel shirts, the famous cardigan that the song Cardigan was like written about. And yeah, I just this I think this was my favorite era. But but now Liv, now that we've been through every single one of her eras. We're sort of into um, dipping back into some old eras like Fearless because she's re-released that and now Red because she's re-released that. So I would like to call on Culture Vulture's resident music (laughs) industry lawyer, Olivia, to discuss why the hell Taylor Swift doesn't have to but wants to re-record these old albums. Now, thank you, Lucy. That is quite the title, um, which I am not going to live up to. <laughs> We're not experts around He's here. She care about that. <laughs> to being a lawyer. But anyway, I will tell you what I know and what I have researched. And Please. it is fucking interesting. I'm so excited. So basically, before we get into the sort of like nuts and bolts of why she re-recorded her albums, we first need to understand the basis of the whole thing, which is the whole deal of music ownership. Teach me. So there are two types of ownership when it comes to music recording. There's the master ownership and then there's the musical work ownership. So the master ownership is the ownership of the specific sound recording, like it's what you're hearing on your Spotify account or on your Apple Music. Like like that final product. Yeah, that final product, that final recording is the master ownership, whereas the musical work um, means that the person or the company owns the publishing rights, which covers everything in the musical work that existed before it became a recording. So things like sheet music, melodies, lyrics, instrumental arrangements. Love that. All of that. Right. So those are our two categories, and they're very important to understand what unfolds. Okay, so just so that we're all clear, 
master ownership is the final product, all done like the digital recording. Digital recording. That's what we hear on Fearless, not Taylor's version. And then the musical work ownership is basically everything else that led up to that bar, like, you know, the final recording. So, like, voice memos and her having written this down on her own, like, pen and paper and stuff. Two very different things. Right. Absolutely. So this is relevant because when Taylor signed to a record label called Big Machine Records when she was 15, she signed a contract saying that the record label owned the rights to the masters, whereas Taylor herself as the main songwriter owned the publishing rights to the music, which is the musical work rights. Okay. So this is a pretty standard contract. Most musicians, Mm -hmm. like most of your favorite musicians, the really successful ones don't even own the rights to their own masters. They often sign these away in order to get an advance from the record label, um, which can seem really good at the time because you know you've got this huge sum of money. You're like, fuck yeah, this is great. But it's not in their best interest for the long run. Mm. So... Basically, as Lucy said last episode, Taylor was sort of scouted, I would say, at a Nashville industry showcase in 2005, and she caught the attention of a man called Scott Borchetta. Okay, I always want to call him Scott Bruchetta, Yeah, I just need to refrain. So Scott Borchetta was at the time, a DreamWorks Records executive, and he was about to launch his own label called Big Machine Records. So she then signed a 13-year contract with this new record label, Big Machine Records, and made six studio albums with them. So these are the ones we've already talked about, her self-titled album, Taylor Swift, Fearless, Red, 1989, and Reputation. And Speak Now. And Speak Now. And Speak Now. And Taylor was actually... She was either the first artist or one of the very first artists to be signed to the record. And her dad, like, you know, backed it 100%. He saw this as a really good investment. And he bought 3% of the shares of the company. So she was one of the first artists to be signed to Big Machine Records when Scott Borchetta was like, I'm going to leave DreamWorks. I'm going to start my own thing. And was her dad sort of like okay, I see the value in Taylor Swift. Let me buy, let me invest in this company. Let me buy some shares. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So her and her family had a huge hand in sort of the, you know, come up of this company. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't just, you know, signed to Universal. Or Sony, you know, like those huge companies that already have a lot going for mm. them. Like she was sort of so the honest. value. Yes. Right? Which is quite important. It's quite in interesting. Mm. Yeah. So once she had fulfilled that 13-year contract um, where she made those six albums, she decided that she wanted to leave. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this was because she was older, she was savvier about the music industry and her rights as a musician, and she basically wanted more control over her music. Um, So the thing is, when she left Big Machine Records, they still did and always will have the rights to her masters. This for those is, six albums. Yeah, for those six albums. So everything she recorded under them, they have the rights to the masters, which is what you hear on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, and Taylor said in a blog post to her fans that she had made peace with the fact that Scott Borchetta would sell her masters at some point. But when that did eventually happen, Taylor was horrified, not because he sold them, but because of who he sold them to. So Borchetta sold Big Machine Records to private equity 
equity groups Ithaca Holdings, which was a company owned by a man by the name Scott Samuel Braun, or better known as Scooter Braun. Mm. And this is when shit really hit the fan. And Taylor did want the chance to buy back her record, her masters, didn't she? She absolutely did, and I mean, we she, will we'll get, get get into this. Can't but you wait. know, this was always on the cards. She's very fucking savvy business. Mm woman she knows what she's doing she knew you know that the music industry was fucking her over or rather these couple of people so if you've heard the name scooter braun to be honest is probably because of this taylor swift drama or no justin bieber well yeah i was gonna say but you may have also heard him because he's a pretty famous music manager he's a big man in the industry he has managed stars such as justin bieber ariana grande and demi lovato he's actually been in a few of these stars documentaries if you've ever seen Mm. demi's latest one he features he features in ariana's um so yeah he's pretty he's a big fish Mm. so basically taylor had a relationship with scooter braun as we have said before she had major beef with yay Mm. And the person managing Ye at the time that all of this beef unfolded was Scooter Braun. So he was, you know, behind the scenes during the VMA debacle. She blames him for orchestrating a lot of what happened during the famous era. Oh, my gosh. Um, I did not know yeah. that Scooter was on Ye's team during Yeah, these- so he was, he was sort of like in and out of Ye's management, but Mm -hmm. he was definitely managing him during these times. Levels, these levels. And so there were also some sort of murky online behaviour between him and his artists, I don't know. Justin Bieber sort of standing up for Scooter even when he shouldn't have been. That kind of like low-key. Like not explicitly, but Taylor knew it was directed at her. Yeah, exactly. It can just be the worst because you almost feel gaslit. Absolutely. So there was a whole lot of shit going on. So I think we can understand why Taylor was so devastated when she decided discovered that her catalogue was going to a man who promoted all of this material. And you who, know, who hadn't respected her. No, exactly. So, he, like, you know, he sees money and he's going to do what makes money. And <laughs> what's so, going to make money? Taylor Swift's masters. Yeah, exactly. So he was pretty much the worst person to sell Taylor's music to. She said um, in a blog post to fans, like when Kim Kardashian orchestrated an illegally recorded snippet of a phone call to be leaked and then Scooter got his two clients together to bully me online about it, she wrote, or when his client Kanye West organized a revenge porn music video which strips my body naked, or now Scooter has stripped me of my life's work and I wasn't even given an opportunity to buy. Essentially, my music legacy is about to lie in the hands of someone who tried to dismantle it. So just like she was like... And like for a second, imagine you'd written six albums that was your heart and soul quite literally. Like, you know, so personal. So personal. We've literally just had a whole episode on all of her romantic relationships. Like she writes deeply, deeply personal songs. So and someone her, else is profiting off of it and someone that's actually bullied you and that's stood up for the person that has made you feel as shit as you could possibly feel in the world. Exactly. So basically when it was sold to Scooter Braun, it was sold for a lot. We're talking like north of $300 million. Mm. Um, and, and that actually kind of feels low to me, but when you think about the money that it will make – from people playing it. Yeah. Good Absolutely. Purchase. So this is how much well it was rumored somewhere around 300 million and 450 million for Big Machine Records. And 
because Taylor was one of the first artists, she actually holds like majority of the value, like her songs, a majority mm. of the value of the that company. company. So, you know, I at first thought, oh, you know, surely there's lots of other artists that it's like, is it really all about you? But it actually is in mm. this scenario. Like this was a small company, as we had said, and and it, her dad was invested in it. Mm. Like, you know, this is a deeply personal company. That, and it's so interesting, just like on a on a slight tangent, that obviously her dad was a minority shareholder. So, like, he must not have gotten a say in the selling of his own daughter's masters. Yeah, I read that he was actually not allowed to come to certain meetings because, you know, what's that Conflict thing? of conflict interest. Conflict of interest. He was a conflict of interest. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of shit there. And then... Basically, Scooter Braun later went on to sell her whole catalogue to another company called Shamrock Holdings for $300 million. Um, and I'm guessing this was when, like, the re-recording was announced, so he knew that, you know, this it was the right money. time. But also, he's still profiting from them via the contract that he holds with oh my Shamrock Recordings. So there's just a whole lot of shit there, right? Like, this guy, He would have written into that contract, like, yeah, I'm going to sell them to you because yeah. I know they're going to lose money, but let me just put a wee clause in here that makes sure that I'll still get some money from the plays that they get for now. Exactly, like, this guy is obviously like good at his job. Good at his job. Good at his job at making money. And He's the man that Taylor Swift writes about. Yeah. He can be complex. He, he can is. be cool. <laughs> he is. He is. So all throughout her contract at Big Machine Records, as we've prefaced, Taylor had been trying to buy the rights to all of her masters, but Scott Borchetta, so the guy who used to be the CEO of Big, Big Machine. Big Machine pretty much made it impossible to do so. And then when she kept trying to buy it, um, I think that there was something about, he was like, you can have the masters if you continue your contract. Like, you know, there was a lot of like back and forth yes. wheeling and dealing going on, like nothing was transparent. There mm -hmm. was no like, he didn't even put a price on them basically. Mm. Um, and then when it was transferred to Scooter, she was still trying to buy these masters and she said that they wanted me to sign an ironclad NDA stating I would never say another word about Scooter Braun unless it was positive before we could even look at the financial records of Big Machine. Oh. Um, yeah, which was always the first step in the purchase of this, in a purchase of this nature. Um, I would have to sign a document that would silence me before I could even have the chance to bid on my own work. I'm sorry, but that's a double standard because I doubt Scooter Braun had to sign an NDA to not say anything about Taylor, or, or even if he did, he got his little other minions to go online and say other things about her. Taylor obviously made this very public, but it was because... She was being wronged so heavily. Yeah, and she wanted she wants other people to know what the fuck is actually going on in the music industry. Yes. I feel like there's a lot of hush-hush from what it sounds like. Um, and they really played on this, you know, saying that she's making it public, wanting Outing attention, them. blah, 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 blah. Like, no, you're doing shit things to a person. They should be able to talk about it. She should write a song about it. Yeah, exactly. And then Taylor reached out to her fans again via another blog post explaining what had happened and then said that the only way around this situation was to re-record the entirety of those six albums because, as we said before, she still had those, like, you know, music works rights. Yes. She still she had... She has the complete right to yeah, re-record them. her sheet music. She mm -hmm. had all of that. She just had to wait until... I think it was November 2020 right. when her contract had ended for two years to put this in place. Okay. 
Um, she was also told that she wasn't allowed to sing her songs at the 2019 AMAs when she was awarded Artist of the Decade, as this would be seen as re-recording her material before she contractually had the right to do so. Um, so what did she do? Did she just not perform? Yeah, so she had to use other songs. I think Lover might have come out by then. Yes, okay, um, yeah, yeah. So she, but she couldn't use any of her back catalogue. Oh, my God. And then also if you have seen her documentary, Miss Americana, you might have realised that none of that contained any of her back catalogue yeah. either, um, and this was for the same reason. Fucking hell. So there was a whole lot of shit going on. Scooter Braun actually did start receiving death threats, which is when standing absolutely goes too far. Um, he also urged Taylor to have a conversation about it. He didn't really say much publicly about the allegations, except that he wanted to talk to Taylor privately about everything that was going on, because obviously he didn't want his name to be tarnished. It's, but it's like, like so interesting because Taylor's the only one that's ever been sort of, not the only enough. one ever, but she's been transparent. She's been brave about it. She's not the first person to re-record her masters. Jojo also did a similar thing, but she is the first person to be very, very vocal to her fans and to younger artists about why it's important to do this. Absolutely. And, like, good So people it. know their rights. And as I said before, you know, they kept using so- social media, like, oh, she's using social media. It was back in that time when social media wasn't, you know, to shine light on shit going on in the world. It was, like, a personal thing where if you put it on social media, it felt like you were just crying out for attention. Oh God, and so yeah. they just really, really played on that narrative. And then he did, um, quote... To be frank, I was shocked and disheartened to hear that my presence in the Big Machine deal caused you so much pain as the handful of times we have actually met. I have always remembered them to be pleasant and respectful. Knowing what I know now, all I have wanted to do is rectify this situation. So, Of course, every time they met, though, it was pleasant and respectful because Taylor wanted to, one, buy the records, and two... She was just expected to always play the good girl. It's not like she was going to snub him or, you know. Yeah, absolutely. He owns all the music. (laughs) There was a whole lot of stuff. And there was also a whole lot more sort of back and forth about the AMAs. But, you know, it's Mm. just all a bit murky. So It's just that she didn't and wasn't allowed to own her masters. And so uh, you've been saying she's extremely savvy. What does she do? She just re-records them and better. Absolutely. So she's... Re-recorded. Well, she started re-recording these albums. We've got Fearless and now we have Red as of a couple of days ago. Both amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she's marketed the re-recorded albums as Taylor's version, like as opposed to Scooter's version. So if you listen to Taylor's version, the money is going to Taylor, not Scooter or whoever owns Shamrock Holdings or yeah. whatever's going on there. So, yeah, not only is Taylor an extremely savvy businesswoman, but she is Honestly, making history for the music industry in regards to musicians' rights and their own music. Like, even the fact that we know about the difference between, like, her owning her, like, publishing rights and, like, the master rights. Yes, And now if, like, we were to go sign a contract, we'd be like, no, we need all of them. You're not getting me. Absolutely. And so, like, now there's a whole lot of labels, newer labels that are being like, we don't hold your master's rights. Like, you know, it's becoming something that people look for in contracts. Like... You know, this it's shit. It's next era. You don't lawyer. know it if you don't know it. So yeah. she's really bringing light to a situation where people, you know, it was always, but that's just the way it is. And it's like, yeah, but why is that the way it is when you're screwing over the artist whose music it actually is and mm. you're just like profiting off of it? So also, she's in a really rare position of having this huge 
dedicated fan base, mm. that this wasn't such a huge risk for her as it would have been for other artists. So I'm guessing that this is why a lot of other artists haven't bothered oh to re-record God. their albums because they don't know that they have that backing to make it all worthwhile. You know, this would have cost a huge amount of money. This would have been a huge gamble for anyone who didn't know that they had millions of people backing their every mm-hmm. move. So it's really amazing because it shows that the consumer has power. Yes. You know, we have power in what we listen to. If we boycott, you know, the old versions of the music, we're actually doing something for the music industry and paving how we want it to be. And also as artists get bigger, their piece of the pie gets smaller as we see with a lot of companies, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, this is so important because if that piece of the pie is already small, you know, if it's just getting smaller and smaller, they just don't have any control anymore. Mm. And this is what she's fighting for. So yeah, basically just like a huge fucking commentary on this hungry machine that yeah. the music industry has turned into. I'm just really, I'm extremely proud of her and I'm extremely like proud of everyone for taking the time to also like learn why she's done this. Like, yeah, she's had to teach us, but everyone's chosen where to learn and, and, chosen to learn about it and like you said where to put not so much our money but like our ears and Mm -hmm. where to consume it and you know maybe it's easier to not change her old songs out of your playlist but now that you've heard this and you're like oh well I don't want the money to be going to these people that you know like a fucking the music industry, let me take the time to swap out and put Taylor's version on my playlist. And it's like, we can all do a little bit and she's got us there and just like fucking big ups to her. Yeah, fuck yeah, because be- she's like always been written off as someone that like, oh, she just causes so much hassle. Like, you know, just yes. why are you... Why is she writing about yeah. that? Why has she got a girl squad like that? Why is she such a snake? Why yeah. is she re-recording her masters? It's like, well, this is why. But it's actually bravery, isn't it's it? It's extreme bravery. It's like you, she knows that people are going to have this view on her, but she does it anyway because she knows that in the long run, it's, it's better the for everyone. Right thing to do. Yeah, we love you, Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening oh, I didn't to even this, I've got myself so. Passionate about so it passionate all. about this, about Taylor Swift single-handedly saving the music, saving industry. The music industry. Oh well, Liv, thank you very much for coming on this journey of yeah. Taylor Swift through the eras, snaking through the forest, coming out in the folky woods. We are out, out of the woods. We're we the are woods. out of the woods, yeah. and that snowmobile accident that allegedly killed someone. <laughs> Let us know. Let us You've know. Do you have any more, any more tips on that? Have you listened to the last episode? Do you know what I'm talking about? Good song, though. No money. Oh, great song. Yeah. We do have to give a massive, massive thank you to T.I. Butler, our producer and wonderful human who has stayed in this sweaty little room with us to make these um, special episodes happen for you. It is honestly a sauna. Like, I haven't sweated this much in a very long time. Just a little bit of oversharing. As Taylor Swift would, as she wants, besties, we are going to overshare We're going to get personal. It's very hot in here. Anyway, we will see you for your usual scheduled Culture Vulture episode on Wednesday. And it's just been a ride. It's been great. I loved it. Thank you all for listening. Share it however you want. Come find us wherever you want. See you next week. Bye.